Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 18th, 2021. I'm in San Francisco, and apparently it's a lovely warm afternoon in New York City. Uh, things are going pretty well there. Uh, the, uh, the subway service is about to resume. Uh, outdoor dining curfew ends uh, this coming Monday. I'm going to be there at the weekend, so I'm really excited to go to the city. The city is in the midst of a, 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 a mayoral race. Uh, a number of uh, very prominent uh, figures are running. None of them seem to be suggesting that New York is in crisis. It obviously can be improved in some ways. But I think generally uh, there's a sense of uh, optimism and prosperity about New York at the moment. That certainly wasn't the case um, in 1978 on Valentine's Day, when New York, uh, more than 40 years ago, when New York was in real crisis. Uh, my guest today on the show, Thomas Deja, is the author uh, of a wonderful new book, New York, New York, New York. And he begins uh, on Valentine's Day, 1978. Uh, Thomas, remarkable book. Congratulations. Why do you begin in February 1978 with your narrative uh, of, of, of New York, the modern history, the contemporary history of New York? Well, Ed Koch has just been elected. He's just been sworn in in January of that year. And Koch coming in is, is the beginning of trying to get out of the hole of the fiscal crisis. And that kind of image of New York as, you know, fear city, that escape from New York, mean streets, taxi driver kind of image I think people have of New York during those years. So um, I Love New York Day was uh, a Valentine's Day party held by the governor of New York to celebrate that now kind of constantly ubiquitous I love New York phrase that you hear all over the place. It was really something that was invented to promote tourism for the state of New York, but it pretty soon became something that uh, really just represented New York City to everyone. And it still is. You still see the T-shirts all over. But that was the very beginning of, I think, Koch's move to pull the city out of where it gotten to and, and begin its comeback over these years, which is not the sort of solid arc of you know triumph. That's why there's no triumph in, in, in the subtitle. It is a story of evolution of the city over these years. There are, I think, three very defined periods that take place. Mm. The well, but, well, before, we, before we get oh, to yeah, those yeah. periods, um, it wasn't, of course, the beginning. There's this famous... Uh, right. episode, which apparently may not have even happened when President Ford in 1975 said to New York City, drop dead. So uh, 1978 may not have been um, the beginning, but it was perhaps the end of the beginning. Is that one way of thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, it, the certainly the city had already under beam been put on a diet. You know, retrenchment had already certainly begun by that point. Um, but I think that the difference with, with Koch was a, a kind of reset away from where Bean had been. I mean, this Bean had been, it was a real, um, Koch brought a much different kind of attitude towards the city that Bean didn't. So in the sense of it being a beginning, 
it is a, a new start in the middle of a process that's already going on of retrenchment and trying to get the city back on much more solid fiscal feet. But there is a, a definite kind of before and after divide with Koch just because of the attitude he brings. Um, and I think he well, brought you, a lot uh, of hope yeah. with the theme. Just as Mayor Koch brought an attitude, so do you. Uh, your, your book, as I said, uh, New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess and Transformation is a really remarkable read. Um, here's the beginning. I'm going to read a little bit out, uh, quoting you exactly. Snow again this morning, four inches, said the AccuWeather forecast after a foot and a half last week. Snow across the hundred acres of broken boards, mounds of brick, bent pipe and garbage around Charlotte Street and Boston Road. Snow edged the sills of burnt-out apartment buildings, dusted shards of glass and mattresses left behind. There'd been some 63,000 fires in the South Bronx in the last two years. Little point in plowing. Wonderful writing, Thomas. Um, the challenge in writing a book about New York, of course, is to rival the city. You did it. Did you intend to with this book? I mean, uh, you, your, your writing is exceptional. Was, it, was that the real challenge in telling this history of coming up with a prose that did justice to the city? You know, the prose, look, I'm, I'm a writer and I have a writer's ego in that way. So I think I've always wanted to write well, no matter what it was. I started writing fiction and one of my idols was Nelson Algren, a Chicago writer, realist who wrote incredibly beautifully about very, very ugly things. And that's something I've tried to bring with me as a writer everywhere. And certainly writing about cities and writing about New York, it seemed doubly important. But um, it also is a kind of writing that came from having a first draft that was about twice as long. So this was very much a product of a lot of editing, of a lot of rewriting and a lot of boiling down. But I think if you're gonna capture a place, you do have to capture it in the style. Um, it, it's only half the story to present the word, the facts and the words. What is you have the to style of New York? What, what, what is the, if, if you had to summarize it very, very briefly, what would it be? You know, diversity in, in the truest, deepest way and acceptance of that diversity and a certain amount of speed. Um, so there's a lot coming at you in New York. And I think the book has a lot coming at you. Uh, quickly. It's like getting onto the express train and going along for the ride for a few stops. And if you can't handle that, if you can't handle being on the subway train with all kinds of people who aren't like you, might not be the place for you. But that is the style, I think, of the book. Uh, is a, There's just so much. I wrote a book about Chicago before this, which was more intimate, and I think kind of captured that city well. Um, but it's a very different style. This is a much more kind of hard-charging city and a much more hard-charging book. In a way, um, it's a nostalgic book. The city has obviously got its act together, and, and that's the core narrative. But it's also missing something now. You, you write about the city of our memories, that thrilling cesspool where anything could happen, site of secret rich rituals officiated by Santerra priests, homes of dowagers on Beekman Place, ref refuge from everything straight and common, that city seemed to have slipped under a sea of gold. What's happened to that city? Uh, is it gone forever, Thomas? Well, I mean, I think this is a book about change and much of that is gone forever because cities are always changing. And that is just a natural part of, of what cities do. It's a question of how it's changed and what it's changed into. Um, 
much of that has been lost, but much of that has been replaced by other things. I mean, I don't see these years as being all about triumph. I wanted to go back and sort of see what worked and what didn't, what we really did lose and what we gained, because we gained an enormous amount over these years. So, you know, nostalgia is a word I'm very wary of because it, it connotates a certain kind of, uh, there's loss, but there's often it's a loss about ourselves. You know, I think back about my years as a teenager in college running around downtown in the early 80s. And, you know, I can't, I, that, that's not the city. You know, that's me remembering my past. And it might not be really thinking about the city. And I think that's what we do when we're nostalgic. So I tried in writing this to evoke some of that. Certainly that's the emotion that drives it, What what is lost. But some of that's lost in, in all of ourselves when we look at that. So my kids are in their 20s and grew up here and have a deep, rich set of experiences here as well that that they'll look back and be nostalgic about when that world turns over as well. So I think we need to be realistic about that when we look at cities going into kind of new eras and new generations. This book, uh, Thomas, is a, is a very significant project. Um, you began it in the, in the fall of 2013. Uh, as so many other books, it's t taken a lot longer uh, than you thought when you started. Uh, you say, though, that it was triggered by the loss, the loss of big nicks on the Upper West Side. What's the big deal or what was the big deal about big nicks? Why did this trigger your, your enormous project? Well, you know, what was a big deal is that it wasn't a big deal. You know, it was a neighborhood burger place that everybody kind of took for granted. And the kids would go there after you played Little League and the Arab guys who ran the newsstand next door went there and tourists went there and you brought your nephew there. It was just a, a neighborhood place, you know, and it was kind of something you never thought was going to go away. And it disappeared, you know, and became a, a patisserie inside of a redone hotel. And, and there was a real sense of loss. It's a listen, the new patisserie is wonderful, but we don't have our memories there yet. That's a, the, the gentrification of your neighborhood yeah. that troubled you. I mean, certainly the Upper West Side, looking back at that moment, and it seemed to bookend between Koch coming in and the end of Bloomberg was this era that was, we think of it being very different from what we think of New York being as this progressive liberal bastion. Then here was, mm. you know, almost 40 years, 35 years where 30 of them at least were spent under Republican mayors or at the very most centrist. I mean, Koch was a Democrat, but he was frankly Koch more than any particular party. So um, it seemed like a moment to look back and see what had worked and what hadn't, because the city was so much better in so many ways than it had been under Koch, but so much had been lost. And so it was time for a very clear-eyed look at what it was like to live through all of that, because the discussion of discourse going on was very binary, good, bad, gentrification, bad. Um, and frankly, there were times Early on, the gentrification was necessary and very positive for keeping the city alive um, and bringing in new homeowners. So you can't just throw that whole idea out the window. How crime was dealt with is a much more involved issue than just saying um, policing bad. You know, there were so many elements that went into it. So the eight years were about diving in and really trying to take these pieces apart, take these threads apart, and really see who the people were that made change, what were the events that made change, what did that change really look like, not just at the top, but um, I also saw that so much of the change was made by New Yorkers. Um, a lot of the discourse had become very passive 
what had been done to New York. Our soul was stolen away. But it came to me at a certain point that much of the story was about New Yorkers standing up and, and making things change in the city. Uh, it was about immigration, new 1.5 million immigrants changing the city um, in very positive ways. So I, I found it a very empowering project and, and book to write in that I saw so many average people changing. And, and that I think hopefully is a takeaway from it at this really tender moment for the city. Well, it's always a tender moment for cities, I think, Thomas. I did a little bit of cheating. I don't know um, whether you're aware of this, uh, but Big Nick's kind of return, didn't it? Um, There's another, well, there was another Big Nick's. Where is that? That's interesting. There were always two Big Nick's. Right. And, also and, and, and here Nick's. we have two two Big Nick's <laughs> or two guys who look a little like Big Nick. Um, so, so I guess the, the point of this is that Things always return to New York. It's very difficult to, it's very difficult to kill something entirely. It's difficult to kill the spirit of New York. Is that fair? You know, I think of New York. I think all cities are like this, but New York especially as being uh, like a wetland. Um, they're very tidal places. Things are mm. always coming. Things are coming. Things are going. Uh, people who grew up here leave and bring New York away. I moved here from Chicago 40 years ago and brought some of that here. When the you moved, did you move to college? Was that why you originally yeah. came? Where did I you go to college? I went to Columbia. Mm. And um, so, uh, Thomas, you divide up um, you divide up the period that you write about, 35 years, into three, three periods. Uh, the Renaissance, you've already mentioned uh, Ed Koch quite a lot. Uh, the Renaissance, then um the dinkins period and then uh, giuliani's reformation very briefly talk about the koch era the dinkins era and then the giuliani one right well i, I mean I, i'd rather conflate um koch and dinkins because i think they do get kind of rolled together they have their own peak and valley in there you know and dinkins is the last Kind of truly progressive mayor um, who comes after three terms of Koch. And often people think of the end of Dinkins as being this kind of, it was, you know, the rotting of the Big Apple, that it was a kind of dip again for the city's fortunes. And then Giuliani comes in um, with his kind of sense of reformation, with policing, um, opening up the city to big box retails, all kinds of changes that produce something of of a high but it is a very it, it, there's something nostalgic about that a lot of it is a rethinking of the city in ways that are about creating an enforcing order that are different than the sense that had grown or had been started by many people in the city to kind of turn public space from free space into shared space that it had kind of re-engendered a sense of hope and kind of civic identification with the city instead of being this place that you just tried to survive on a daily basis. And so Giuliani takes some of that, which is good that, you know, the way Central Park got fixed, the way Bryant Park and the Central Park Zoo were, were renovated, kind of, you know, exciting and usable again. Giuliani uses those as a way to enforce order, to, I think, culturally enforce that kind of, uh, in the face of multiculturalism, which is really happening, the first culture wars are in the early 90s. Giuliani uses these things to kind of enforce a, a uniculture on the city um, and to kind of create a city of standards and order. And New York is a place that likes 
um, it, it likes chaos, you know, but it likes to know someone is in charge, and it doesn't. Yeah, and you, you like make it. the point that uh, Dinkins and De Blasio, what they have in common, is a failure of leadership, not so much of policy, but of leadership. You also talk about the seven themes of the book that come mm-hmm. back time and time again. Um, you might very briefly go, maybe pick two or three of them that you think are particularly important. The seven themes that sort of define the history. You know, I think it's important in the face of the pandemic um, to remember the impact that AIDS had. Um, It's easy now to think that that's sort of something that's taken care of. And, you know, as a day-to-day problem, it's certainly nothing that it was back in the 80s. But the impact it had on the arts, on media on the long-term, the way the city dealt with the built environment in a way it cleaned up um, many parts. That was kind of a outflow of that. The city will, you know, it recovered from that, but it was changed in such a profound way. And what was lost, we, we don't know. Um, it showed some very dark elements of, of New Yorkers and their reaction to it and their homophobia. Um, but it created, I think, uh, made major changes in gay life that were, for all the death, I think kind of created a, a new sense of identity for gay New Yorkers and obviously, you know, throughout the world. But in New York, certainly it changed a lot. Um, and I think the other, another big one just to talk about is tech. Um, I wanted mm. to write a book that showed how technology played out in so many ways over this time, um, because we tend to think of it in very segmented ways. And when you start to lay out this whole kind of story of how technology plays into different aspects, not just in how the city is run, but in how we lead our lives, that these things really do weave together. And when we walk around today and think, well, we kind of live in this atomized city um, and, you know, in in a world that's had enormous impacts from the internet on just, we're looking at these empty street fronts from the pandemic, which is really the tail end of, of retail being thrown up in the air by Amazon. So we have a whole arc of ways that that technology changed New York um, for better and, and for worse that I really wanted to kind of have people see as, as a lived experience. I really enjoyed the section on uh, 9-11. And if I say I would enjoy, I enjoyed it, I think that's the wrong word. Right. I think it was very moving and very profound. Um, you quote E.B. White at the beginning from 1949, uh, the city for the first time in its long history is destructible. A single flight of planes no bigger than a wedge of geese can quickly end this fantasy island, burn the towers, crumble the bridges, turn the underground passages into lethal chambers, cremate the millions. Uh, it didn't quite happen that way, fortunately, in 9-11, but uh, White uh Got it right. You, you suggest nine um, eleven was. You seem to suggest that it was a time when New York grew up. Is that fair? It changed. It it became more sympathetic, more human. You say strangers hugged. Uh, they served rescue workers. Day spas gave free massages on the street. Suddenly, downtown was restored to its old identity as a more genuine world and to itself. Maybe it was once like that, but New York rediscovered itself after 9-11. Is that fair? 
Well, I mean, I think, that, as I mentioned before, that kind of movement towards people de developing or discovering, rediscovering a sense of kind of, you know, not civility, because that's a word Giuliani used, but a better phrase is one that Frederick Law Olmsted came up with and that Adam Gopnik has used called commonplace civilization. How do we live together in this city? And we were moving towards that place, I think, and, and Giuliani had kind of turned it against each other. People were very much ready for that to change. And then 9-11 happened. And Rebecca Solnit writes so beautifully about disaster utopias. And it was so true that New York was that. Um, for a while after 9-11, the city really did exist in a kind of state of grace. Um, we really were closer than we ever had before. And a lot of the reasons that people did not get along, that there was that sense of elbowing each other, that kind of New York, you know, mm. seemed kind of foolish for a while. Um, and I think it really leaps out now because of this pandemic, which has been so much more deadly, so much more devastating in terms of human cost, in terms of the economy than 9-11 was. Um, but we, what we were able to do after 9-11 was be with each other, to hug each other, to spend an enormous amount of time together. And New Yorkers, for a reasonable amount of time, wanted to just put away the kind of anger that Giuliani years had, had engendered among us all. And I think the one of the tragedies of the pandemic, this is the COVID, is that we haven't been able to be with each other. And there's something so poignantly horrible about that, that what we most needed is to be together, and that's what we can't do. So um, the 9-11 chapter is, um, I did want it to be a kind of set piece. It is a climax to the book in a certain way, because if you've lived in New York during these years, it was um, hard to describe what that was like. Um, yeah, and, I, and, and you seem to suggest, uh, and I was intrigued with this, that in 9-11, um, you said if Giuliani hadn't entirely succeeded in making the city like the rest of America, 9-11 had now made it more American than anywhere else, uh, which distracted from how rigged the stock market still was and all the other disquiets and doubts that had grown since the markets had popped. Why did 9-11 make New York so much more of an American city? Well, it made us afraid in a way that New Yorkers weren't used to being afraid. Um, it made us kind of think twice about our great open arms and then bring on all comers and, you know, the hell with everybody else kind of attitude. Um, we started to worry. We got fearful. Um, terrorism became an excuse for a reason to um, worry about safety in a way that safety was just not, New York didn't worry about that. You, you brushed up and you moved on and, and it made it much more wary. Um, so the city became even more wealthy under Bloomberg, which is sort of the third evolution of the city in the book. Um, but it became, in, in certain ways, it became global in a very abstracted way. Immigrants came and globalized it in some very fundamental ways um, that have been great to the city's benefit. But in that sense of, of all comers, we lost a little bit of that and started to worry a lot about um, terrorism, fear. Um, and that engendered the sense of stop and frisk, which was allowed to kind of go on, go on and increase unchecked because, it, you know, it was validated. We were we didn't want to be attacked by terrorists. We didn't want to be attacked by anyone. We were afraid of being afraid. And that led us down a very dark path, I think. You talk in the, the Trump, uh, the, the Trump New York as a, a place that. Um, 
the, the New York perhaps became the heart of a new kind of liberalism. You have this wonderful description of the arrest and rape trial of Harvey Weinstein, the fucking sheriff of this fucking town that signaled uh, uh, perhaps the end of toxic masculinity's hold on culture and cultural power. As you know, there's a huge debate going on now about identity, race, gender. Has New York become the official capital of liberal America? Perhaps it always was. Is there any debate there amongst the the literati like yourself about any of this stuff? Um, the what well, you know. First of all, Harvey Weinstein called himself that, not me. So that's right. his quote. Um, I apologize. Yeah, but you used it beautifully in, in, in your ironic way. No, I, I certainly listen. Quoting people about themselves is is one of my goals. The um, you know is liberalism is. Um, it aged and changed over these years and how it is defined, you know? And I think um, it did become something that was based on money. I think tech had something to do with that. Tech allowed people with, you know, liberal goals and liberal values to believe that making money was a really good thing. And, and tech seemed to offer that. It seemed to offer an alternative to Wall Street that we could create all kinds of new money and we create growth, which is ultimately something that Democrats have always supported. A lot of the, the kind of policies of New York in the late 70s and early 80s um, that created so much real estate was about old school democratic growth policies that were gonna share the wealth. And over the years that became you know, inequality just loaded all that money top and part of that came through a sense from democrats themselves that they could make money and basically write checks to you know pay their taxes and write checks to philanthropies and that would take care of the problems without really asking the kinds of structural questions that democrats you know fdr style often did and used to do and was part of the whole you know basket of, of doing that and so people lost their way a lot. I think those discussions are the last six years have been painfully, painfully instructive to a lot of people. Um, not everyone, um, but it, it's going on. And I think more people are asking those questions. And I think some of it's generational. Um, the, those people who were maybe in their 40s and 50s at those, you know, in at the turn of the century, this turn of the century, um, are now starting to give way to younger generations of people who are looking for power and asking questions that we haven't asked in a long time, but it's time to ask them. Uh, Thomas, the the image you leave us with in, in this wonderful description of New York is of all New Yorkers as, as tightrope walkers. Um, you refer to Philip Pettit, the French tightrope walker who walked uh, between the Twin Towers um, and here's a an image of him from Lit yeah. Hub, uh, and you end beautifully. You say, uh, like Pettit, uh, New Yorkers take that walk every day, maintaining our balance between order and disorder, inside out, public and private, trees and steel, construction and destruction, rich and poor, we and me, here today, gone tomorrow. Living in New York requires using all your muscles. That's what's so exhausting the going back and forth. But it's also what makes us so strong and resilient. We are constantly adjusting, constantly in flex. I, personally, I, I don't think I have the energy to live in New York, but it is an exhausting thing, but also uplifting, is. isn't it? I mean, it really is a kind of civic, maybe not so much political, 
but it, it gives you that civic purpose, that civic identity, which you all share in New York. Well, I think you have to really love people. You know, one of the godfathers of this book is a man named Holly White, who was very an early kind of back to the city person. Right. And, and he famously said when asked, exactly. and you have this at the beginning of the book, when Holly White was asked when to name his three favorite American cities, he said New York, New York, New York, which is, of course, uh, the reason why you called the book right. New York, New York. Where the title comes from. You know, Holly said cities exist for the face-to-face -face exchange between people. and to him, the whole answer of fixing New York, of bringing it back to life, was about making it better for people. And I think that needs to always be number one. Um, there was a great sense of making it more comfortable for capital and for money. And that takes us part of the way. But we really need people to make a city a place to live in. And that offers us a great opportunity every day, especially if you're a person of any kind of spiritual bent to go out and, and act on that every day. Uh, and, but again, you have to like people to live in a city like New York. And you have to be a tightrope walker. I'm talking to you, as you know, Thomas, from San Francisco, a city in desperate need of being fixed. We are in the metaphorical 1978. It's a terrible, terribly dark city at the moment in terms of poverty. And it's a catastrophe city. What advice, what do you think New York, what model can New York provide for other American cities, particularly one like San Francisco, which has had its soul ripped out of it? Well, I, I think one needs to love all the other kinds of capital that there are. Um, it's very easy to look at tax revenue and, and money as the sole important capital, but social capital matters. Uh, there are all kinds of economies that live inside of cities and when you reduce them all to simply money, you really do lose things. Um, so I think it's about keeping all those other kinds of networks going and making sure that they're exchanging meaning, that people really have the opportunity to really have those face-to-face -face exchanges that create meaning in a city. Um, a lot of the people who were there in the early, in the 70s and 80s, really took that stuff to heart and they meant to make those changes. And it was their intention to make public places um, and schools, better places where we can do that. And that I think is held on here. We're, and it's part of what is making the city better that we're moving ahead out of the pandemic. Things like open streets where they're blocking off streets for people to just be out in the streets during the day. Uh, the, the kind of uh, outdoor dining that you'll find when you come this weekend. There are streets that have been really made magical um, by having outdoor dining sheds that are really reinvigorating the streets. So you have to look at the streets as a place to lead um, a kind of that attitude. I can go down a list of all the other horrible things that have gone wrong, but the streets are a place where things are going right. Well, uh, New York, New York, New York, uh, four decades of success, excess and transformation by Thomas uh, Deja is, um, is certainly one of the books of the year. I think it's going to win a number of awards. It's a wonderful testament. It's a love letter to New York by someone who wasn't necessarily born there, but has spent their life there. Uh, I know you're in your Upper, side, upper West Side retreat, Thomas, at the moment. Uh, in addition to your book, uh, New Yorkers are going back on the street, but you still have to stay inside perhaps for the next few days. What else should people be reading in these uh, nearly post-COVID times? Yeah, I... You know, I am. It's the, ironically enough, the cover is made by the same person who did the cover of my book, but Lewis Menon's book on uh, 
post-World War II, Art and the Thought in the Cold War. I'm halfway through and it, it is just fabulous. It's just remarkable. So I, Metaphysical Club was one of my favorite books and I think this is terrific. It's, it's another hearty read, but I think it'll well pay off. Do you know him, Menard? I don't. I don't. I'm looking for. I think we're supposed to meet him this fall at a writers' conference. So I am looking oh, forward well, to it. Well, I need to get him on that. I uh, that 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 book caught my. I haven't read it yet. That book caught my attention, and I think it's a wonderful compliment to your book. I'd like to get him on the show. Well, Thomas Deja, author of New York, New York, New York. Wonderful to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. And Thank you, sir. I think we're going to need more advice from you in terms of fixing San Francisco. Uh, so we'll have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Would love to. Thank you, sir.